Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey guys, it's Olivia Perez. I'm a journalist, entrepreneur, and the host of Friend of a Friend, a show where we sit down with some of my friends, your friends, and new friends to host inspiring conversations about building something from the ground up. This week, we're talking to Alex Lieberman, the co-founder and CEO of The Morning Brew a multi-platform business media company offering a daily newsletter, an emerging tech and retail newsletter, and a weekly podcast. Alex gives us the ultimate crash course in the world of email marketing. And for those of you who aren't subscribed to The Morning Brew, I couldn't recommend it enough for a daily dose of curated news and information. It's truly one of my favorite emails to get. Alex founded The Morning Brew as a graduating senior in 2015, after noticing his fellow students didn't have one trusted source to keep up with the business world. Within the first six months, the newsletter had over 30,000 subscribers, and Alex left his day job as a trader at Morgan Stanley to build what's now known as one of the most popular business newsletters. Today, The Morning Brew is received by more than 2.5 million readers daily and did 13.5 million in revenue last year, all with the goal of providing digestible content and changing the way young professionals engage with the business world. Alex and I caught up over Zoom where he tells us all about building an audience-first company his thoughts on his responsibility as the head of a media company, and the important role vulnerability has played within his entrepreneurial journey. Don't forget, if you like what you hear, leave us a review on the podcast page and head to my Instagram every Thursday for a recap of the episode on our mini-series, The Friendly Files. Here's my friend, Alex Lieberman. Can you hear me fine? I can hear you great. For everybody just tuning in, I would love if you could tell everybody who you are, what it is that you do, and what The Morning Brew is. I am Alex Lieberman, co-founder and CEO of Morning Brew. Morning Brew's goal is to empower the modern business leader through engaging and accessible content. We are a media-first company. We have four, about to be five products. The daily newsletter, which is called Morning Brew. It gets confusing. Company name is Morning Brew first product is called Morning Brew. Morning Brew, daily newsletter meant for the business mind, goes out to 2.2 million people every day, six days a week, more than 900,000 people open the newsletter every day. We also have started to go into B2B media. So we have Retail Brew for the retail professional, Emerging Tech Brew for, you guessed it, the Emerging Tech Professional, Marketing Brew, which launches in about a week for marketing and advertising folk because far too long has marketing content been really shitty and dry. We're going to fix that. And then we have our own podcast, Business Casual, which is bi-weekly hosted by Kinsey Grant, where we interview the biggest names in business like Mark Cuban, Meg Whitman, Barbara Corcoran, and uh, many more. You missed one podcast. 
Are you talking about mine? Yes. I'm a huge fan of his podcast. So like he can't skip that over because we're going to talk a lot about, about it in this. It is my baby. We haven't <laughs> yet rolled it up into the Morning Brew ecosystem. It's called the Founders Journal. And basically the vision is, well, first of all, the impetus for it is I've always wanted to journal and I've always found every way to not journal. And so I decided one day if I force myself to do this publicly, I will have to keep consistency and do it every day because I don't want to let down my audience. So by building a pact into it, it'll force me to do it. It'll memorialize my experiences in my career. So when I'm 50, I can listen back to this and you know appreciate the experience. But the vision is that this is for the entrepreneurially minded who wants actionable tips or just like lessons to resonate with another founder who's going through shit, who doesn't want quite as much energy as what Gary V gives, not to no, give I, any I, shit to Gary. He's built an amazing <laughs> audience, but just, you know, a different flavor totally, of entrepreneurship. Totally. And, uh, and, you know, the ultimate goal would be actually you have a collection of this portfolio of founders journals where you can select not just from Alex's founders journal, not just from Olivia's founders journal, but dozens of founders based on kind of the journey you want to follow. I love that. I've been listening to it every day. If you guys haven't tuned in, you definitely have to. They're like eight to 12-ish minutes and like the perfect dose of like inspiration or just being able to like see yourself in some sort of entrepreneurial moment. So highly recommended. For people who are tuning in that might not, and I feel like actually a lot of people might not know about this if you're not in media, but the email and like newsletter marketing world, I think is very niche. And I think you have to have some sort of like privileged knowledge in the media space to like understand the true power of it, the true reach of it, and kind of what goes into like the economics of it in the background. So I'd love if you could kind of just give us a little baseline knowledge in that world, what your experience has been like in it, because it is so hyper-specific. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's a good point you make because email is most of our world. It's something that I've thought about the word email for five years straight, and I'm definitely not Uh, not the majority in that behavior. The reason we first started with emails predominantly for Morning Brew was out of happenstance. It wasn't because like we were, you know, visionaries and what was kind of going to be a content channel that would have a quasi renaissance. My co-founder Austin and I were at Michigan. We wanted to deliver better business content to students in the business school because we saw that they didn't feel engaged by traditional business content like the journal, Economist, Financial Times. And we said to ourselves, what is something, what is a behavior that college students already have? And what is a cheap way to deliver that content? We weren't about to build an app. We didn't feel like people were going to destination websites anymore, other than maybe five sites that people were kind of just like the cream of the crop for people. And we knew that college students use their emails a lot. And so we decided to do it through email. And for the first year of the business, it wasn't even a business at this point, but it cost $100 a month to run this, just having a MailChimp account. So it was very cheap. You know, in hindsight, while we didn't plan it this way, what I think is so beautiful about email is it can be a destination and people haven't treated email as a destination in the past because I think it's really hard unless you're an email first company to change your focus to not focusing on things like social content, web content, app content. And so a lot of traditional media companies treat their newsletters as complementary goods where it's always about content marketing. It's always about, let's show an image of an article on our site. Let's give a a few quick words about it. And then let's try to drive people back to the site. But people have never really thought about it as the home 
for consuming content. And so I think that's a big mental shift. And I think the other thing is with an email, you have the ability to own your audience, unlike on social where it is harder to own your audience because there's not a gatekeeper like Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, etc., who's actually you know owning the, the end user's relationship as a platform. And you have the ability to build habit because someone has opted into something that they know what they're going to receive. It's done on a daily basis. And so it starts to work their way into their mental real estate, just like taking a shower in the morning or having a coffee does. And so because of that, you have the ability, if the content is really good, to build a heart loyal audience. And by doing so, you have the ability to monetize that audience really well and charge really high dollar prices to advertisers to get in front of that audience. 100%. It's totally about routine. I mean, I always like to like ask people what their like media diet is in the morning because it's like you wake up, what are the first things that you're checking? And I've noticed myself like lately, it's been Twitter, which really bothers me because it's not at this point specifically, like it's not like I'm getting articles first where like I'm reading from a trusted news source. I'm just reading opinions like all the time, 24 seven. And like the Apple news app kind of sucks the interface of it. So it's like, there really is a missing void in terms of like how we can have like an aggregated source of information in the morning that doesn't feel stuffy and boring. It's something I actually want to read. So 100%. I think we live in an age of curation where basically what happened was Ben Thompson, who's a really amazing thinker around technology and business strategy. He writes a newsletter called Stratechery. He talks about this, which is this shift that effectively you went from limited content to unlimited content. And what caused that is, you know, in the early days, you had a newspaper and newspapers had all the power because they had the distribution channel. Distribution channel was literally like the printing press, the delivery mechanism to deliver papers to people's home. But with the the creation of the internet, basically you put a printing press and you put a delivery route in every human being on planet Earth's hands that had access to the internet. And so what that did is We live in the age of the individual creator because individual creators have the same ability to get in front of many billion people as the New York Times does. And so what that has done is you have this proliferation of content. And with a proliferation of content, one, that means consumers expect more custom and tailored content to their individual experience and their individual preferences more than ever before. But it also means that there is increased value more than ever before in curation, in cutting through the noise and basically doing the work to find the shit that people actually care about. And people will give you either their time or money for doing that. If there's anything that we talk about often on this podcast, it's that taking care of yourself is number one, especially when it comes to our skin. Whether you're worried about dullness, redness, fine lines, or acne, Trying to find the right treatment can be really frustrating, especially in these times. It's been a huge challenge for me in COVID, whether it's breaking out from my mask or not even feeling safe enough to visit a dermatologist and get it taken care of professionally. Now there's a simpler, smarter solution to skincare. Meet Rory, a digital health clinic for women. Rory is a sister brand of Roman. And like Roman, they make it simple to connect with a healthcare professional online and see if a personalized prescription skincare treatment is right for you, all from the comfort of your own home. Go on your phone or computer and complete a free online consultation, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed healthcare professional within 24 hours. If appropriate, they'll prescribe a personalized skincare treatment plan that works just for you and your skin. With Rory, you don't even have to go to a pharmacy. Your custom skincare is delivered right to you with free two-day shipping. You can also follow up with a healthcare professional anytime if you need to make a change to your treatment or have questions. They're there with you every step of the way on your skincare journey. 
With Rory, there are also no commitments and you can cancel at any time. Go to hellorory.com backslash friend to try out their nightly defense treatment plan for just $5. It's free to chat with a doctor and your first order is only $5. That's hellorory.com, H-E-L-L-O-R-O-R-Y.com backslash friend. Eligibility requirements and additional terms apply. Hi, I'm Caroline Stanbury, and I am Divorced Not Dead. I'm a former Bravo TV star and now former wife. Fresh off the back of my divorce, I'm bringing real stories, real life, real talk on all things that aren't said between each other, society, the sheets, and everything in the middle. Divorce Not Dead is not just for divorcees. In fact, I'd say it's especially for those single women who think marriage is the end goal and they haven't yet achieved it. I'm not here to tell you to get divorced, to get married, or to get with anyone that you can. I'm saying keep your goal open, as I certainly will be. Let's start by throwing out the rule book on everything we already know. Why do we put so much pressure on ourselves for the happily ever after? Does our love story really have to be just one? One great lengthy novel, or can we be happy with a book of short but exciting love stories? Is it really possible my second chapter could be, God forbid, even better than the first? I guess we'll find out on Divorce Not Dead as I navigate my new normal. And lucky me, you'll be joining me for the journey. So buckle up. What was your experience like a little bit before you founded The Morning Brew that led you to see that that void was missing? I wasn't looking to start a business. I've always been a very curious person. But I also, even though I was always very curious, I was on a very, a very traditional route, like went to college to an undergrad business program, had a job lined up to go into financial services, to work for a big bank in sales and trading, was planning on doing that my entire life because that's what my dad did. That's what my mom did. That's what my grandpa did. What happened was I was in my senior year at Michigan I had already gotten a job offer to work in finance for after school. So I didn't have to worry about recruiting. I only had to take two or three classes my entire senior year. And so I was just like, I need to do something to keep my mind working. And so I started helping other students in the business school prepare for job interviews because a lot of people were re-recruiting. Wow, that's And the question I would always ask people when I was mock interviewing them is the same question my dad would ask me when he was prepping me for interviews, which is, how do you keep up with the business world? Like, what do you read? How are you staying up, up to date? And the answer that pretty much every student would give me is, I read the Wall Street Journal. But there would always be this like kind of but, either part of their answer or feeling to their answer. Like the emotion they gave off wasn't like, yeah, I read the Wall Street Journal. I was like, yeah, I read the Wall Street Journal. And so I would ask like, you know, what is your relationship with the Wall Street Journal? And basically the answer would always be the same. I read the Wall Street Journal because I feel like I have to because it's a prerequisite to say you're well-read in business and it's something my parents told me to do. And so after hearing this answer over and over and over, I was just like, there has to be something better, something that engages people with the context of the career that they want to spend the next 40 years of their life in. Like there has to be something that gets them more excited to do the work they do. And so I started by writing a daily newsletter. It was called Market Corner. It was written in a PDF had all of the same like DNA as Morning Brew. Five most important stories written in 50 to 150 word digestible blurbs, a stock pitch of the day, a trivia question 
the day, an inspirational quote of the day. But the writing was pretty mediocre because I had no writing experience in the business school that we weren't expected to write. The aesthetics were horrible because I wasn't a, a designer by training. Uh, there was a bear and a bull fighting in the top left uh, corner <laughs> that I ri- ripped off of cliche. Yeah, exactly. It was it was about as cliche and like it's so funny because I was like trying to make business content sexier and more enjoyable, but like the the product itself looked like the most antiquated thing ever. But the way the content was being delivered resonated with people, and the way I knew that is. I was attaching this PDF to email and sending it to a listserv of people. It was like marketcorner at umich.edu. And it started with 45 people signed up, the people who I was helping prep for job interviews. Every day after I started sending it, I would get texts from people basically saying, hey, I heard about your daily roundup. Can you add me to your listserv? There was no website. You can go to a landing page and put in your email address. You had to ask me to sign you up. And after three months of doing that, there were 2,000 people signed up for it. And so to me, the fact that someone told someone else about this, that someone else reached out to me to sign up for it. And it was that high friction, yet people did it. Like that was a really interesting sign to me. So did you ever go into that job after college? Yeah, I did. So graduated from Michigan, May of 2015. I moved back in May to New York, July, started my job at Morgan Stanley. And I worked there until September of 2016. And right after Labor Day of 2016, uh, I quit my job to go full-time on The Brew. Not like not even at all, it doesn't look at all similar to what The Brew is now. When I left, we hadn't made a dollar yet. We had 30,000 readers. No one was full-time on it. Austin, my co-founder, was still a student. So when I went full-time, Austin was still a student. I was the only person full-time. And That's a huge risk. Yeah, it was a a large risk, but I want to also make a comment on that because I think uh, risk is a really interesting thing for startup founders. But basically, I've been full-time on the business for just short of four years. It was a large risk, but I also, I think there's two big points here. One is that I think people assume that working in a corporate job is really low risk and working in a startup role is really high risk. And my, my view is, Yes, that potentially is true, but there's a spectrum. And when I was working at Morgan Stanley, three months into my job, because of poor performance by like the bank, 25% of my division was laid off. So my division had 4,000 people, 1,000 people, and one day were laid off. People who had had careers at that company for more than 10 years. And actually what you find is when people get later in their career optionality goes down because as you get better at a job and you get more mastery, the number of possible jobs for you to want to take goes down. And so you would think of it as a non-risky job, but I I think it was really hard for a lot of those people who were laid off to find jobs after that they were actually excited about. And in the same way, yes, it was risky for me to leave a job that I was making, let's call it 75K a year and make $0 for a period of time. But I also think risk has to be assess on a situational basis. And what I mean by that is I am so fortunate to come from a family that had the means to support me while I was transitioning to working on Morning Brew. So I always knew that I would have a fallback. I always knew that if Morning Brew failed, my family would help me find the next thing. For the first 12 months of me working on Morning Brew, my family paid for my rent. Like that removes such a massive 
point of anxiety for a lot of people. And so, yes, it was risky, but I would say my experience is actually way less risky than some entrepreneurs that quite literally don't have a fallback yet still take that risk. It's important to acknowledge that privilege too. And I think that's a really hard part of the storytelling of entrepreneurship that a lot of people don't want to recognize nor talk about, but desperately need to, to avoid a lot of potential downfall for people that try to jump into the into the scary oceans of entrepreneurship. Couldn't agree more. As you guys were starting the newsletter, what was the process of bringing on your co-founder? And you obviously have a very distinctive voice. Like the angle is super specific of what you're talking about. It almost feels like business, dare I say it, feels like business for millennials in a way. It's digestible, it's understandable. And again, it makes sense that you were trying to fill the void of like, what's the opposite of Wall Street Journal? What went into you guys sitting down and understanding what that voice was. And I feel like it's still even hyper-specific today, like from your newsletters a long time ago to where they are now, like your voice has always stayed the same. Yeah. So I think in the beginning, it was like, let's say 50% purposeful, 50% accidental. Now it's 100% purposeful. And what I mean by that is like, yes, the goal in the early days was to write in a conversational way so that when people were reading our newsletter, it felt like you were having a smart conversation around, let's use the example of like Uber's earnings with your cousin who's around your age. You guys get each other. You have a lot of overlap in life in terms of life experience versus you having that same conversation with like, you know, your uncle who smells, picks his nose and like will talk at length because he doesn't get social cues of when you're actually done having that conversation, you want to move on to the next thing. Like that was kind of the goal. But also the reason I say it was 50% accidental is that we didn't have a choice. Like Austin and I were writing this in the beginning and then we were having college students writing it as well. And no one who was writing this was like a trained writer. Like no one was a trained journalist. No one was like an English major. And so I think the way we wrote was the way we spoke. And the way we spoke is the way that we wanted people to receive the newsletter as time went on and we saw that like this way of delivering content struck a chord with people, I think then we were more purposeful about building out processes to allow our voice to evolve and scale. And so one of the, you know, the biggest contributors to that is our first writer became our managing editor as he was continuing to refine our tone, this tone that felt like quick-witted, passionate, but not stuffy, uh, not condescending, but really informed we like actually got very specific of building out this profile. And we have a, a, a doc for Morning Brew that's like our voice Bible that not only explains like the characteristics of our voice, like the ones I just named, but also actually specifies the person. Like if Morning Brew was a human being, what are their habits? How old are they? Where are they living? What do they do on the weekends? What do they do during the week? And this has allowed us to scale our voice because I think that's the hardest thing is how do you scale your voice when you launch Retail Brew or Emerging Tech Brew? You're doing Twitter content. How does it still feel like it's coming from the same person? And I think creating process around a voice is a really hard thing. And I think that's what we've been really purposeful about doing over the last few years. You guys are also, again, hyper-specific in what you do where it's it's newsy, but it's also really curated. Like you can go from like reading about the stocks to like funny stats at the end of your newsletter. What was one that I saw the other day that like actually made me laugh? I can't remember. What, I in a joke in the newsletter? Yeah, no, like at the bottom of one newsletter I was reading the other day, it was like four statistics of just like the most random things on planet Earth. Yeah, I mean, that sounds about right. Honestly, yeah. like our our newsletter writers are so good at what we call reading the internet. 
Yes. Basically, just like they find every nook and cranny of the internet. And I think you've seen that even like with our social content recently, like on Twitter, we've done a phenomenal job recently. And I think that's a function of saying to ourselves, how do we evolve our voice onto social? Because you can be the same person, but have a different personality depending on the context of your life. And I think that's how we treat our voice. Like, you know, the Olivia with her parents, the Olivia with her friends, Olivia talking about business and a potential deal. Even though you're the same person, the way that you approach that conversation can look very different. And I think that's how we think about the voice with Morning Brew. Morning Brew as a person through our newsletter, Morning Brew as a person through Twitter. The Twitter one is maybe the person after work who, you know, is drinking a beer, is with their friends, still is informed, but like 30 to 40% informed and 60 to 70% humorous and witty. Whereas with the newsletter, that that balance looks a little bit different. Honestly, I love what you're saying right now because I feel like so many businesses, whether it's like a consumer-facing brand or a media conglomerate, whatever it is, some businesses I feel like try to exist in a silo where like they just operate in their own field of work and it's like kind of repetitive. But I think today to be a successful business, you have to have like a 50-50 mix of both where it's like, how are you going to engage with your consumers on like pop culture level almost and like be engaged in that conversation that has to do with like the most random things that we see on Twitter to like trends on Instagram, trends on TikTok, whatever it is. Like, How are you going to be involved in that conversation and then marry that with like whatever your business is? Yeah, I mean, I think if you if you think about the companies that are always like most celebrated on Twitter, it's the ones that understand the type of user that's on Twitter, the type of humor that is appreciated, the type of content that people will actually consume and engage with. So it's like Wendy's, Slim Jim, like right. these aren't brands you would traditionally think would crush it on Twitter, but it's because they understand the audience and they understand the type of content and the voice that is needed to resonate with that audience. I didn't ask you this earlier, but now I'm so curious. What do you read in the morning? Morning brew, of course, every day. And then what I try to do, honestly, is I've tried to spend a lot of time thinking about like what workflow gets my best work product. And I think what I found is like an hour of content consumption in the morning makes me like my most productive and creative self. And so what I'll typically do is read three or four newsletters. It'll probably be Morning Brew. It may be an Axios newsletter. And I I may scan a few other newsletters um, that kind of get into the rotation on a every other day basis. But then what I'll do is actually just go read longer form content. Like I'll read some of my favorite Substack newsletters that I find to be really strong. And for anyone who's listening that doesn't know Substack, basically it allows individual content creators to write distribute and monetize their own content. So like if you believe you're a great thinker and writer about some niche, let's just say professional basketball, and you want to capture the audience who cares about professional basketball, Substack allows you to write a newsletter and write content about professional basketball, delivered in newsletter form, and then actually charge for it. So you can manage a premium audience and a free audience. And so I actually spend a lot of time reading some of my favorite Substack creators that write about either media, business strategy, and technology. Back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, in terms of just being open about running a business, one thing that I admire a lot about you is the fact that you've been so open about being a founder. And it's not really something like hidden behind the veil, even from like what you do with Founders Journal to so much of what I've heard you talk about and just being honest with 
your own employees and being open about the journey of starting a business. I'd love to hear a little bit about what the intent is behind that and where that like vulnerability has like taken shape in your own work. Yeah. So my default has always been maybe to a fault to overshare when I think something, feel something. I would say less so when I feel proud of something, but like when I feel anxious about something or insecure about something, I tend to overshare it. And I don't know why that's my default other than I feel like when everything's out on the table, there's no jabs to throw. I've put myself out there. And whether you want to accept that or not, like you know exactly what you're getting. I think the biggest thing also is because being a founder, I think is the most fulfilling experience, not just professionally, but personally in, in molding, I think just molding mental maturity. Being a founder is a, a really challenging experience because I think it also comes back to the expectations that are set externally. People have the perception, if you are a startup founder, you are Mark Zuckerberg, you are Travis Kalanick, founders of the biggest companies in the world. But what you're not focused on is, one, all the shit that any of these massive founders had to go through to get to where they are that could combine some amount of like emotional risk, monetary risk, challenge, sacrifice. And so I think it's just important like for for people to truly appreciate how much of a grind it is and how it oftentimes doesn't work out as you had hoped and to like really better be passionate about what you're doing because 50% of the time you may not love what you're doing. And I don't know if other founders experience this, but I almost wanted to call it out in my podcast, assuming that other people do experience this. Like I have just this sense of uh, imposter syndrome where I oftentimes kind of like my brain defaults to, we are lucky for getting here. I'm not actually that skillful. I'm not actually doing that great of a job. How can I be doing a better job? And I think that's what on one side is a really constructive and productive thing to push me to be the best version of myself. But I also think having a little bit more self-love to appreciate the work I do is also really important. And so I think sharing this just allows me to hopefully over time build more muscles to have a balanced perspective about this journey. A hundred percent. I think also what's important to note is the feedback that you're sharing and the knowledge that you're sharing, even if it's on your podcast with Founders Journal, it's not something that just needs to be specific to an entrepreneur or a founder. I think the tips that you share and the feelings that you're even sharing, especially with imposter syndrome, I think everybody in the workplace can feel at some point. So I think that to your point of being vulnerable with the way you run your business internally and externally is really important because you're just, you're feeding a collective circle of people who are all young professionals who want to succeed as well. A hundred percent. And I think that the last point on this for me is um, I believe deeply in this idea of psychological safety, uh, that people will be their most creative selves. People will be their most authentic selves. People will form their strongest connections when they feel like they have the psychological safety to be their fully open self and psychological safety is, I believe, created by you know someone preceding your vulnerability with their own vulnerability, and also this feeling that you're never going to be judged for when you are vulnerable, the things you share. And so, uh, you know, I hope to create this idea of psychological safety by sharing my own vulnerabilities, but also knowing that when you talk to me, you're not going to be judged. It's going to always be a conversation, and we're going to work through it together. So I'd love to talk a little bit about where you're at now with the business. You have over 2 million subscribers and you have the four different channels that you're working on, four different products, channels, whatever you want to call it. 
how do you feel about scaling? And I know that you had talked about you're obviously launching a new channel next week, but what are your thoughts in that, especially as I'm sure in the email newsletter world, there's like one source of revenue. There's like one source of income. And one thing I've thought a lot about this time that I think it's forced a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of founders to think about, especially during COVID times, is like, how do you scale? How do you diversify your revenue streams? And I'd love to hear a little bit about how you guys are thinking in that vein as well. Yeah, uh, we, we are thinking a lot about it for so many reasons. One is because working as an entirely distributed company that's fully remote right now, it forces you to think more about process as you scale. Because Do you if like you're it better remote, or worse? <laughs> I personally, my ideal work scenario would be in office four days a week and one day a week home to basically work from home on a Friday. The part I like about it, about working from home, is that I think if done right, there are less distractions for me that allow me to do deeper work. But I've also found the other kind of the other side of that coin where I could be more distracted if I'm around family members or I'm around, uh, you know, my girlfriend and my girlfriend's family. It's very easy to get distracted. I also, I like, I feed off of other people's energy. The way I think I do my best work is where I have periods of doing deep work and thinking to myself, but also periods of bouncing ideas off of people. And I think it's harder to have kind of like that serendipitous, brainstormy type interaction in a remote environment. There are going to be, there are going to be trade-offs, um, whether you work remote, whether you don't work remote. And I think that's what we just have to think through as a business. As we scale, I think the biggest thing we have to think about is one, how we continue to get amazing people to work at our company. Like that is everything. We have such good people. We can't skimp or concede on the quality of our people as we hire more. Everyone who's already on our team, like they are deserving of working with other all-stars. And so I think recruiting is like more important than ever because we are going to be scaling faster than ever, which is going to require more recruiting. But like, we always have to be thinking about it. 2017, we did $175,000 in revenue. 2018, we did 3.5 million in revenue. 2019, we did 13.5 million in revenue. And the goal this year is 20. The big question becomes, how do we get from 20 to 30, 30 to 40, 40 to 50 and 50 to 100. And I think what you find in the world of media, unless you are an ad-based platform like a Facebook or an Instagram, is that it becomes really, really hard to scale above mid-eight figures. And so when you talk about becoming a $100 million media company, if you start counting how many $100 million a year media companies there are, it's like very, very few. You could count it on one hand or maybe two. And so for us, a lot of the thought is, how can we stay true to our mission while giving ourselves the opportunity to get to that point? And I think to the, the original question you asked, it is going to require revenue diversification. I also think it requires, and I actually, right before this, did the Founders Journal episode, and this was the conversation. I think the way that I think about companies is, and especially our company, is not as a media company. It's as an audience company. And, and I don't say that to basically call our company like a cool new sounding thing. Like we're not a tech company. That's self-awareness. We, I love it. <laughs> we are an audience company. And what I mean by that is like, we have to be so relentlessly focused on who is the power user of Morning Brew. What is their day like? What do they do? 
And what have they given us the permission to like extend ourselves to offer them as well? That probably includes more media, but it may not include media. It may include product, it may include education, may include some sort of subscription. But I think when you think of your company as an audience company, the entire universe of things you can provide grows because now you're not looking at one sort of core competency like media. You're looking at many core competencies. It relentlessly focuses you on serving a certain type of person that you have stated that like your higher mission is meant for. On that note, it's an election year and you guys have the turnout, which is your political channel. What is your thought process right now in terms of how you're going to use that platform throughout this year, especially because you do capture such a millennial audience of people who historically have not gone out to vote? Yeah. So it's a great question. The short answer is we actually closed down the turnout. Oh, you did? Yeah, we did. And we we closed it down, not because it wasn't a great product. Uh, Eliza- who, Why do I feel like I saw it recently? It was about, I want to say a month ago. Wow. Sorry, everybody. COVID brain has really got me. No, no, it's it, it was it's it was an amazing product, and the open rates on it were were incredible. It was like a seventy percent open rate. It was uh, Eliza, who was the writer, did a phenomenal job of breaking down complex political topics in a nonpartisan way, which I think you can't find that type of content anywhere. True. The big issue, honestly, we had was monetizing it, like because we we don't have the. Um, well, it's hard to monetize a political platform. Exactly. Because we don't have like the, you know, the the good fortune or the the luck of being a venture-backed company that just can basically self-fund stuff for a while. Basically, everything we build has to be profitable pretty quickly in order to justify the business. And this is kind of like the part of like we want to we want to build the best product possible for people, but it also has to make business sense. Is there was no clear path to monetizing it effectively because to the point you just made, it is really hard to monetize political news content. And we found that to be a massive struggle. Okay, same question, but for the morning brew. My answer would be that the George Floyd shooting and all of the preceding um, events, the the protests, the dialogue, it, it created what I think is a really necessary and healthy conversation in our editorial department just around like what is the remit of our editorial team. And I think what it made us realize is a few things. One is we have always said that we are going to exclusively cover business topics because we are a business newsletter and people are coming to us for business news. What we came out of those conversations realizing is one, there are certain topics that are so massive, that are so important for people to know about, that we are doing a disservice to a business-minded audience by not providing that content and using our platform as one to educate people, even if it is not directly about business. And I think the second, which is a really interesting one, is a lot of people don't even think about Morning Brew as their business newsletter. Like I think what we've realized from this entire experience of running a media company is that people don't consume that much like news media. People consume a lot of media like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter news media. People don't read a lot of news. And so a lot of people think, like think of Morning Brew as their holistic news update. It's very true. They don't think they're necessarily missing out on like geopolitical news or social issues because they're reading Morning Brew. It was such a an interesting realization because we never expected that of ourselves. And so the the roundabout answer to your question is where in the past, for the past election, I think we were pretty absent from covering 
the election because we didn't believe that was our point of differentiation or point of knowledge since we were a business newsletter. I would like to think that we are going to make hard but necessary decisions to include content around this more just as we did for the entire Black Lives Matter movement because they are issues that simply anyone needs to know about, including a business professional. And I think that was a huge learning for us over the last month. 100% true. I think you'd also probably have some people that would argue that business has so much to do with political outcomes. 100%. Especially now when we're dealing with what we've seen with Black Lives Matter and how many businesses have seen such dramatic turnover for not being held accountable for being inclusive. So I think I think you'd be smart to do that. <laughs> I'm 100%. not going to overstep my, my... No, but my, I... I I totally agree. I think everything yeah. you said, um, we're fully in alignment with. I also am just totally like, I'm, you know, we're both young entrepreneurs. We have platforms with young audiences. And I think that it's just like, we have to do that service. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, it's it's what we should expect of ourselves. Like we have such an opportunity to um, deliver messages and information to a lot of people. It's, uh, it's a privilege that a lot of people don't have. And we need to continue to audit ourselves in are we using these platforms in the the most positive way possible? Yeah, I love that. I've heard you talk a lot, especially on the Founders Journal, about you wanting Morning Brew not to just be something that people get in the morning, something that you want it to be something that it follows them throughout the whole day. What is your plan and what's kind of the mindset to help that come to life over 2020? Yeah, so I think... I think it goes back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, which is this this notion that I think we need to think of ourselves, and any company for that matter, needs to think of themselves as an audience company, not a media company, not a tech company, not a CPG company, not a food and beverage company. And so I think if we think of ourselves as the audience company, and we say, you know, Morning Brews Reader is a 28-year-old living in New York City in quarantine right now. They work in finance, but they're not in their office. They're, you know, sitting at their two monitors on a daily basis you know, working where they eat and they sleep now, what else are they doing in their day? Like, are they are they taking a break at lunch to go on a Peloton? Are they sitting on their couch at six o'clock to watch Waco, the new Netflix show? And like, I'm using such specificity because I think that's what makes our audience tangible to us, but it allows us to ask the question of, should we serve them more social content? Like, does this audience have a need or a one o'clock show where we do a talk show around the biggest things that's that have happened in business that day, where it's, you know, a back and forth conversation around, you know, lemonade, the insurance startups new S1 and how they're gonna go public. Or uh, you know, does our does our reader, that 28-year-old, are they interested in actually instead of watching Waco, they're really interested in a business thought leader like Ray Dalio lecturing them on the most important things to know as a long-term investor. And so it can manifest itself in so many ways. I never like to close out with this broad of a question, but I feel like you have a distinct answer because of all your experience. What piece of advice do you have for anybody who wants to found any type of company, whatever it is? What's like the biggest tip that you've learned over your time as being a founder that you can share with somebody? So I've, I've never given this advice before, but I would actually, I think um, this is actually a really profound thing for people to do. So when I was in New York, there was an event that I went to that I think is still one of the best events that I've ever gone to. It was called the Startup Graveyard. And basically it was three founders. It's horrible name. <laughs> it, but it's the perfect name. It was three founders that had exponential growth in their company and then their company failed. 
like blew up in spectacular fashion. And those are the stories that actually resonate most with me because I think it brings a level of reality and authenticity to startups that people don't have and appreciate. But it also gives you perspective on obviously never hoping for that. But if that were to happen for you, would you still start your company? Would you still appreciate the journey enough, the really good stuff and the really bad stuff to still go start it and give you give it your best shot? It is a humbling experience to actually read, listen, or watch companies that didn't work out where the founder spent five years or 10 years putting everything they had into building it. Because if you understand that, that outcome and that story and you are still all in for it, then you're probably starting something for the right reasons. If you watch that and you're scared shitless and you're like, there's no shot I'm starting it, then I think it was the best experience for you to know about those outcomes as well. I love that. That's amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. It was so nice to be connected with you. I absolutely love the newsletter and love everything you do. So keep doing it. Thanks so much for having me and thanks for, uh, thanks for brewing. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Friend of a Friend. Before you go, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at tiermedia.com. And for more behind the scenes of the show, visit us at friendofafriend.us and follow me at Liv Perez on Instagram. Don't forget the two Vs. See you next week.